Good evening, everyone. I am glad that you're here, and our topic tonight is Jesus on living free and forgiving or being forgiven. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, You are God, and we are not. And who are we that You are mindful of us? We are like a vapor in the wind here today and gone tomorrow. And yet, very clearly in Your Word, You tell us that You love us with an everlasting love. We are the apple of Your eye. And so, Lord, we are so grateful and thankful that You have begun a good work in us. Thank You for bringing us out to Jesus on prophecy. Lord, we don't ever want to lose that spirit of investigation. We want to keep learning. We want to keep growing. And so we're praying and asking that the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts, that, Lord, You'll give us eyes to see. You'll give us ears to hear. Lord, give us a heart that is in tune with You. You tell us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so, Lord, we're praying for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on this place. We're praying that you'll speak directly to our hearts and minds. Help us to understand. Make it so clear. You tell us that the Bible is there for us to understand. And your word is so simple that even a child can understand it. So Lord, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off tonight by asking you the question, do you understand stress? It used to be that only engineers understood stress as they would be working on their models of building high-rise buildings and bridges. They would have to understand how much stress, how much load that something could take. But today, everybody understands stress, don't we? We live in a stressful environment. Well, years ago... There was a prestigious medical university that was doing some stress tolerance testing. They wanted to find out if there was anything that would alleviate stress. And so in their research, they took a lamb and they built a pen and they enclosed it so that the lamb couldn't see out, but they could see in. And they put 17 different feeding troughs within this penned-in area. And they ran electrical wires to them and put electrodes on those feeding troughs. And then they filled each one of them with food. And then they put that lamb in the pen. And when the lamb went over to one of the feeding troughs and started to eat, they shocked the lamb. And the lamb jumped back and he ran around and he was anxious and nervous and didn't know what happened, but eventually he went to another feeding trough. And they shocked him again. And he jumped and he ran and he was anxious and he was nervous. And then he went to another one. And they shocked him again. And they did it again and again. Eventually, that lamb went to every single feeding station and finally, after being shocked at the last one, he was anxious, he was stressed out, he was nervous, he went into the middle of the pen, and he fell down and died. And so, they took the lamb's twin, 
and they put him in the pen. But this time they did something different. This time they put the lamb's mother in the pen with him. And the lamb went to a feeding station and he started to eat and they shocked him. And the lamb jumped back and he turned and he looked at his mother and he said, Bah! Bah! And the mother turned to the little lamb and she said, Bah! Bah! And the little lamb turned around and started eating again at the exact same feeding trough that he had been shocked at. And the researchers said to themselves, What? is going on here. And so they shocked him again. And the little lamb turned and looked to his mother and said, Bah! Bah! And the mother said, Bah! Bah! And the little lamb went right back to eating at the same trough. And so they shocked him again. And this time, the little lamb came over to his mother and the sheep whispered something into the little lamb's ear and that's where the research broke down because they didn't know what the mother said to the lamb but the little lamb turned around and went back to the same feeding trough and began to eat again. And the conclusion that the researchers came to was that that first lamb didn't have anyone to run to. But that second lamb had someone that they could go to for security. Someone that could help them carry their burdens. And so I ask you the question, who can bear our burdens? Is there someone that can handle our guilt? Is there someone that can handle our worry and our anxiety? Is there someone that we can go to for security? Is there a refuge in the time of storm that will help us? Is there, when trauma is going on, tragedy, difficulty, tribulation in our lives, is there someone that we can find security in? And of course we know the answer is yes, there is someone who can carry our burdens. The book of Revelation reveals Jesus Christ in all of His splendor, in all of His beauty. And He is presented as someone who is returning to this earth with great joy and with great glory. He is described in the book of Revelation many different ways. In one place, he's described as the commander of the angelic armies. In Revelation chapter 5, he is described both as the lion of the tribe of Judah and as the lamb that was slain. Jesus is pictured in various places of Revelation as a conqueror as an overcomer, as the one who died in our place, and as the angels say, worthy is the Lamb. He's described as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
He is the mighty high priest who stands at the throne of God interceding on our behalf. He is the great high priest who is pictured walking among the candlesticks which are symbolic of Him walking in the midst of His church throughout the church age. And friends, that should be encouraging to us tonight because we are living in a world that is filled with sin. We are living in a world where it is a constant struggle. And there are many people who are ready to give up on the church. But praise God, Jesus is depicted as walking amongst His church because He's not ready to give up on His church. Amen? Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 simply says that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. As I've said before, the book of Revelation is a prophetic book, but it is also a relational book. Jesus Christ wants to have a relationship with each and every one of us. And it reveals Him, yes, as the Alpha and the Omega. Yes, as the conquering King. But there's so much more that it has to say specifically about Him. The book is revealing Jesus Christ. And it's revealing His major role. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 calls him the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He went to the grave so that he can comfort those who are brokenhearted over the loss of a loved one. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He sets up and deposes kings. He is powerful. He is the supreme leader of the universe. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 says, She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And of course, that we know that this male child is Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary. He is the Savior who faced Satan's temptations head on and he was victorious. Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 continues, And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Jesus Christ came to this world, lived a perfect life, showed us the love of God, died on the cross to pay our penalty for our sin, but death couldn't hold Him. He rose from the dead and then He ascended into heaven. And He is there before the throne of God interceding on our behalf. The Bible teaches that He is our High Priest. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14 through 16 says that Jesus comes to reap the harvest of the earth. Let's take a look at it. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on His head a golden crown, and in His hand a sharp sickle. At the end of time, Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and He is going to gather together His people. He is going to take us into heaven back to His home so that we can be with Him and sin and sinners is going to be destroyed forever. Amen? 
He is pictured in Revelation chapter 19 as a king on a white horse, symbolic of a conqueror, symbolic of victory and triumph. He is the one who has never lost a battle. He is a general who has never lost a war. He is the one who has defeated Satan. From Revelation chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22, we see that Revelation has a hero. And his name is Jesus Christ. But of all of the symbols that represent Christ in the book of Revelation, the symbol of the dying Lamb is the most prominent and most precious. It is found more times than any other symbol in the book of Revelation. In fact, Jesus is described as the Lamb 27 times in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and there stood a Lamb as though it had been slain. As John is in vision and as he's looking into heaven, he sees this lamb. It has been slain. It looks like it should be dead to him, but there he is standing at the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is described as the lamb from the foundation of the world. In the distant ages of eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit came together in divine counsel. And they came up with a plan that how God was going to save man. In Revelation chapter 12, you have a dragon-like beast who attacks the Lamb. And then he makes war with his followers. But then in verse 11 it says, And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In the book of Revelation, the Lamb triumphs over the dragon. The Lamb defeats all of the powers that are against Him and His followers. The Lamb triumphs over every false religious system. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Friends, if you are on the Lamb's side, you are on the winning side. Amen? Revelation 17, 14 goes on to say, For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. But let me ask you a question. Why would God, in the book of Revelation, choose something as weak, as innocent, as helpless as a lamb to represent His Son? If we're going to answer that question, then we are going to need to go back and trace the symbol of the lamb through the Bible And see how the Lamb reaches down to us even today. How does this understanding of the Lamb of God affect us today? And how is He able to carry our burden? How does He liberate us from sin? How does He give us the assurance of eternal life? 
So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Let's go back to Adam and Eve. And you'll remember that Adam and Eve disobeyed a direct command of God. He said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you do, you will die. They disobeyed a command of God, and that is what the Bible calls sin. The Bible describes sin as transgression of the law, breaking of God's law. Adam and Eve were told that if they disobeyed and they ate of that tree, they were going to die. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. But here's the amazing part. Adam and Eve sinned and God was immediately there. You can read in Genesis about Him walking in the garden and Adam and Eve running and hiding. But they eventually connected... And rather than rebuking them, rather than chastising them, rather than bringing immediate death, He was there to bring them hope. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, essentially, either you die and pay the penalty for your sin yourself, or you need a substitute who will die in your place, and He promised them a Redeemer. He promised the Messiah that would come, and He would win the victory for them. But He also instituted the sacrificial system. They must bring a sacrifice. They must bring a substitute. It was a lamb that was to pay their penalty for them. He was to die in their place. And speaking of Old Testament sacrifices, Moses in the Old Testament book of Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So here we see that blood represents life. And the wages of sin is death. This is the penalty for disobeying God's direct commands. And so the shedding of the blood of the Lamb represents the payment or wages of sin. And so following God's instructions, Adam brought the Lamb. And the lamb was slain. Can you imagine how Adam felt? He had never seen death before. And now this lamb has to die because of him. Throughout the Old Testament, God commanded His people to bring animal sacrifices. God told the Israelites to build a sanctuary, a tabernacle, so that He could dwell with them and so that they could bring their sacrifices. And so every day, animals were sacrificed at the sanctuary. 
So what did it mean when someone brought their lamb to the sanctuary? Let me ask you a question. Can an animal atone for the life of a man? No. Or did it symbolize something else? That's what we want to try and understand. I want you to put yourself in those days, in the wanderings of Israel, and I want you to imagine that there's a a Jew by the name of Josiah. And Josiah is having a bad day. He gets angry with his neighbor and they get in a fight. He punches him in the face, knocks him down on the ground. He's got a bloody nose and a bloody lip. But that night when Josiah comes to his evening prayer, he senses that he has sinned. And so he goes to his neighbor and he apologizes to him. But there is still this guilt that's hanging over him because he realizes that he's not only sinned against his neighbor, he's sinned against God. And he knows that he has to bring a sacrifice. He knows that he has to bring his lamb to the sanctuary. And so the next morning... He gets his lamb, his pure spotless lamb, and he takes him and he starts walking to the sanctuary. And he's going through the camp of Israel and everybody's looking at him. And everybody knows what he's doing. Everybody knows that he has sinned. He is guilty. And he needs to bring his lamb to the sanctuary. And so he comes to the sanctuary and he kneels down and he places his hand on the head of that lamb and he confesses his sin. And symbolically, his sins are transferred to the lamb. His guilt is transferred to the lamb. And as he's got his head on there, he takes his other hand and he cuts his throat. And there's a priest there with a bowl catching some of the blood. And the animal eventually collapses and dies. And they take the animal and they put it on the brazen altar and it is burned up. But then the priest takes that blood and he goes into the sanctuary. Now before Josiah came to the sanctuary... He is weighed down with the burden of guilt. He's weighed down with his sin. But as he confesses his sin over the animal, it's symbolically transferred both the sin and his guilt. The Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, And it shall be when he is guilty in any way in these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. And so when Josiah confesses his sin, 
his sin and his guilt are transferred to the sacrificial animal. The life was in the blood. And so now the blood is symbolically being carried into the sanctuary and being kept there. And now Josiah walks away free. Free of his sin. Free of his guilt. He deserves to die, but the animal died in his place. Now, why did God require these countless thousands of animals to be killed? Did those animals take away the sin of that person and give them eternal life? Did they cleanse the people of their sins? Or did they merely represent something else? Did they point forward to a better sacrifice? You see, friends, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we find a key that can help us understand what those sacrifices pointed forward to. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then in verse 28 it says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. You see, the blood of those Animals that were sacrificed were foreshadowing, pointing forward to the shed blood of Christ on the cross. The sanctuary services in the Old Testament were designed to teach us God's plan of salvation. A number of years ago, there was a woman in her mid-40s that went to a Bible study series much like this one. And one night at the end of the meeting, she went to the speaker, the pastor, and she said that she had a great deal of guilt that she was bearing and she even had a hard time talking about it. But would he meet with her? And so they met, and when she told him that she couldn't hardly talk about this thing, she began crying, and and so the pastor prayed with her that the Lord would give her the strength, the courage to share with the pastor the things that were going on in her heart and in her life. And And the woman told him that 27 years ago, that she had made a tragic mistake. She had had an affair with a married man and she became pregnant. And she was young and, and she wasn't able to care for this child so she had an abortion. And the pastor very lovingly, very kindly said to her, I know 
that if we lived in Old Testament times, that you could bring a lamb and you could confess your sins over it and your sins would be transferred to that animal and so would the guilt and you would be free of that guilt. But we don't live in Old Testament times, do we? And so the problem is that you don't have a lamb. He says to her, but all of those lambs in the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God. And so if you come before the Lord and you kneel and you confess your sins, you can roll your burden onto Him and He will forgive you of your sins and take away that guilt. Your guilt will be wiped away because He is your Lamb. You know, friends, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for us. Let's throw it out. Every Lamb that was sacrificed pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so all of those who brought their lamb in the Old Testament were looking forward in faith to the coming of the true Lamb of God and the One who could truly take away their sins. And all of God's people in the New Testament they could look back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and they can repent of their sins and He will forgive them. But what about us today? Is Jesus willing to allow us to be free and forgiven today as well? Does His blood cover you and me? To be free from guilt, first of all, we must acknowledge it. A sinner in the Old Testament would never be free from guilt until they first acknowledged their sin and brought their lamb. It's only as we acknowledge our sin, it's only as we acknowledge our guilt and then go in prayer confessing to God and if necessary going to the one that we have wronged that we can find forgiveness and release from that guilt. Now, there are some people that say, but I have done things so bad, Pastor, that God can never forgive me. But friends, that's not what the Bible says. It says that if we come to the Lord and we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Amen? And so we need to come to Him. And we need to say, Lord, I understand that I have sinned against You. My sin has separated me from You. But I want to have a relationship with you. Please forgive me. 
I lost my temper. I got angry. I was filled with lust. I was dishonest. Whatever it may be, as we come to Him and we acknowledge that we are guilty, we need to confess that sin. We need to be very specific about it and give it all to Him. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, but praise God, the verse doesn't end there. It goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is to be freely accepted. It is not wages. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift. Now, there are many people that say, well, if God died for everyone, then why isn't everyone going to be saved? That's a good question, isn't it? But let's think about that for a minute. I want you to imagine that I give you a gift. And I wrap it in beautiful paper and put ribbons and bows and streamers on it. And I put your name on it. It is your gift. I give it to you. And you take that gift home. And you set it down on your kitchen table. And every day you walk by and you look at that gift and you go, oh yeah, there's that gift from Pastor Rod. But you never open it. Friends, that gift is of no value to you, is it? It could have a million dollars in there, but you have never accepted it. You've never received it. You've never opened it. And the same is true in salvation. Jesus Christ died for everyone, but you've got to receive the gift. You've got to accept Him as your Lord and Savior, you've got to ask Him to come into your heart. He's not going to come in. He stands at the door and knocks. But if we invite Him in, if we receive the gift, then we can have eternal life. We can have that relationship with Him. And as an Israelite would follow the plans in the sanctuary of so long ago, the guilt of their transgression was removed by faith. The guilt was gone. And we can have that same experience, can't we? If I come to Jesus and I confess my sin, the burden of guilt can be rolled away off from me and onto Him. Jesus Christ, the divine Lamb, was slain for you and me. What happened on the cross that day was more than the shedding of His blood. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. That's going to be page 1379 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles on your table. 1379, Hebrews chapter 9, and I want to look at verse 13. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. I'm going to pause right there for a moment. What this is saying is that if those Old Testament sacrifices were there to save the people because they were looking forward to Christ, then look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Friends, your conscience can be cleared, cleaned. Your guilt can be removed. God wants to save you. Good works can't save you. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I hope that my good works outweigh my bad works, right? That's the way the world thinks, but that's not a biblical teaching. You can never be good enough. When people say, I'm not good enough, I say, me either. None of us are good enough. But it's not based on our good works. It's based on the goodness of God. It's based on the gift of God. And when we lay a hold of Him by faith, which He invites us to do, we can have His righteousness. When you invite Him to come into your heart to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, you turn control of your life over to Him. He's going to enable you to live for Him. Here's the thing, friends. The old covenant was when Moses went up the mountain, God says, I want to make a covenant with the people. If they will keep my commandments, I will be their God and they will be my people. And Moses goes down and says that to the people. They say, yes, we will do whatever God says. So Moses goes back up the mountain. He says to God, yes, the people will do whatever you say. God gives him the Ten Commandments in stone. But before Moses can get back down the mountain, they're already breaking the first and second commandment. They're worshiping idols. They've put other gods before him. The problem with the Old Covenant was it was based on faulty promises. It was the people saying, whatever the Lord says, we could do. But friends, you can't do it in your own power. And so Jesus Christ came and He said, I'm going to make a new covenant. And this covenant is going to be based on better promises. Because I'm promising you That if you accept me, if you ask me to come into your heart, I am going to come into your heart and I am going to write my law on your mind and in your heart and I am going to fill you with the Holy Spirit and you are going to have the power, the capacity, and even the desire to keep my law. Now we can do it. You see... You and I, we have to come before Jesus Christ and we have to say, Lord, I have failed. I have let You down again. 
But wash away my sin. Take away my guilt. And we can know that the blood of Christ was shed for us to pardon us of our sins, to cleanse our conscience and reconcile us with God. Friends, do you believe that God can do that? Amen. There's only one who can take away our guilt. Friends, we need forgiveness today, don't we? We need it desperately because guilt does terrible things to us. It robs us of peace. It destroys our lives. And there's only one who can take away sins. There is only one who can redeem us. There is only one who died in our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Why did He do this? Because He loves us. Did Jesus ever sin? No. But He became sin for us. When Jesus hung on the cross, He experienced more than the pain of the nails in His hands and His feet. He experienced more than the pain of the crown of thorns being pushed down on His head. When Jesus hung on the cross, the darkness of sin enshrouded Him. It hid Him from the Father's face. And that's why as He hung there on the cross, He cried out in Matthew 27-46, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Jesus was bearing the guilt of humanity. He felt the condemnation of sin crushing out His life. All Jesus could see was the guilt of our sin and He made that decision to stay there as the Pharisees were mocking Him, come down from the cross and save yourself and save us. He could have done that, but He stayed there. He made that decision that He was going to go to the grave for you even if He never came out again. His only goal was to save you. To bear our burden. To bear our guilt. And tonight, friends, your guilt can be rolled away. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Friends, salvation is a gift. And when does God give it to you? He can give it to you right now. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. When by faith we say, Lord, give me the gift of salvation. I come with an open heart. I come to the cross. I come believing that Jesus is my Lamb. I kneel before the cross. I confess my sins. 
The burden of guilt is taken off of my shoulders. It is put on Jesus. And I am forgiven. I am redeemed. Now friends, please don't misunderstand me. Jesus isn't bearing the burden of your guilt all the time. He did that once and for eternity. I want you to turn with me and to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, that's going to be page 1391 of that seminar Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want you to notice what Peter says to us in verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Friends, He died for you. It is a gift. Have you disobeyed and done something that you know you shouldn't do? You can come to Him. You can come with all of your guilt, all of the shame, all of your sins, and you can receive His free offering to you. But it must be received by faith. We must believe that He is able to do what He says He can do. How do you receive Jesus? You receive Him. You believe in the power of the Word of God. According to John 1, Jesus is the Word. And so as we accept the Bible as truth, it is to accept Jesus because He is the truth, the way, and the life. We cannot really accept Jesus Christ without accepting His Word. We have to follow His teaching or we are not accepting Him. And so there are five simple steps that we can do to receive the gift of eternal life. Number one, the first thing that we must do is accept the fact that God loves us. Now that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? You may not even love yourself. Others might not love you. But God promises you that He loves you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. The second thing that we must do is we must recognize that you cannot save yourself. There is nothing within you to draw you to God. He must first draw you. There's nothing that you can do that will make you have enough good works. It's not about good works. We have to recognize that we cannot save ourselves or that we have anything good in us to recommend ourselves to God. That means we must have the humility to recognize that we are in great need of a Savior. I've often told people, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. Right? Because we've got to recognize that I am lost before we will go to Him and ask Him to save us. Amen? 
Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Number three, we must believe that God can do what He says He can do. He says He can save you. Jesus has the power to save you. There is no power like His because when He speaks, He creates. Many of us are looking for an outward change. We're looking for a quick fix. But He is looking to change us from the inside out. He is looking to give us a new character. And if we have Him in our heart and in our lives, if we have His law written in our mind and in our heart, do you think we will want to obey Him? Absolutely. Absolutely. He changes the heart. He recreates the life. The Bible tells us that when He died, He didn't just die for our sins. Here's the thing, friends. He doesn't want to just forgive you of your sins and you keep on sinning. He wants to forgive you of your sins and then He wants to transform you into His Son so that you won't keep on sinning. He wants to transform your heart. He wants to transform your life. And the only way that He can do that is as we surrender our lives to Him. He's the only one that can save us. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You cannot save yourself. That is impossible. We must believe that God loves us. We must believe that we can't save ourselves. We must believe that He can save us. And number four, we must confess our sins and believe that we are forgiven. This cannot happen in our own strength. And we must have His life and His Spirit in us and working in our hearts in order to gain the victory each and every day. It is important that we surrender our hearts to Him every day. I don't know about you, but when I get up in the morning and my wife and I pray together, one of my prayers is always, Lord, I'm surrendering my heart afresh to You again today. We need to continually surrender. It's not a once, oh, I did that once. No. We must do it every day. First John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our righteousness. And friends, He can do that for you right now. Right now, in the privacy of your heart, you can say, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. My sin has separated me from You. But it's my understanding that you want to have a relationship with me. And I'm telling you, I want to have a relationship with you. So I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I'm turning it over to you. I remember the first time that I gave my heart to the Lord. 
I said, Lord, I'm giving my heart to You. I'm giving my life to You. I'm giving You control. I've messed it up. I don't think You can do any worse than I did. Take it. You can have it. That's what we want to do. We want to come every day. Number five, claim His gift of eternal life and choose to serve Him every day. When we take these steps, the Bible says that we are justified. God has promised us that if we confess and forsake our sin, that's the thing, friends. When we confess our sins and we turn from them, right? We believe that when Jesus comes into our heart, the power of God is there to transform our lives. Friends, people all over the world are making that decision. They are coming by the hundreds. They are coming by the thousands. They have come and they have said, God, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. I cannot save myself. I can't redeem myself. They have come declaring, Lord, You are my Lamb. You are the Lamb of Revelation. A pastor sometime past said this, Here is a man or woman born in sin. This past is riddled with wicked choices. In some way, the love of God shining from the cross of Calvary reaches his heart. He yields. He repents. He confesses. And by faith claims Christ as his Savior. The instant that is done, He is accepted as a child of God. His sins are all forgiven. His guilt is canceled. He is accounted righteous and stands approved, justified before God. This amazing, miraculous change may take place in one short moment. This is what the Bible calls righteousness by faith. Friends, this is justification. When you give your heart to God when He comes in and begins to clean you up from the inside out, now when God looks at you, He no longer sees your sin, but He sees the righteousness of Christ. And you are seen by Him as just as if you had never sinned. You're justified. But then there's a lifelong process of being sanctified as you continually surrender more and more of your heart to Him each and every day, He begins to change you and fix you up and clean you up and bring you to a place where you will have the character of Christ. And as Jesus Christ is getting ready to come back to this world, He is looking for a group of people who look just like Him so that He can take them home to be with Him. And so friends, He is calling us today to be different than the rest of the world. He's calling us to set the standard high. He's calling us to be different. He's calling us to be like Him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's because God has the power to recreate you. 
This is a wonderful thing for us tonight. All things become new in Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives to Me will come to Me. And the one who comes to Me I will by no means cast out. Jesus says, if you come to Me, I will never reject you. I will accept you just as you are. He accepts the alcoholic. He accepts the heroin addict. He accepts the rapist, the murderer, whatever you have done. He will accept you. But He will not leave you that way. He will clean you up, transform your life, turn you into a new creation. Friends, Jesus Christ is either a liar or perhaps our perception of Him has been a little bit skewed if we think that He is not able to change us. If we think that He's not able to transform us and to save us. Jesus decided what you were worth Long before He went to that cross. But He makes His righteousness available to you. Have you made your decision to accept Him? If you haven't, you can make that decision tonight. I want to encourage you to do that. Perhaps you have given your heart to Him and then you've gone back into the world. You can make that decision again tonight. Come back to Him. He wants us to yield our hearts to Him. And so come with me and meet Jesus. He cleansed lepers. He healed those who were suffering of maladies. He forgave sinners. People knew that He would receive anyone who came to Him. He touched the eyes of the blind and made them see. He unstopped the ears of the deaf. The lame were walking. The mute could sing. Peace and love and joy flowed out from His very being. Children loved to be in His presence. He took the time to speak to people individually. He ministered not just to the crowds, but to every heart. His life was one of service. He knew every person by name. He knew their individual burdens. He knew their needs. His eyes and His heart were always looking for those that He could touch. Nothing stood in His way of drawing close to the humanity of the world even as they were ready to crucify Him. In His presence, death fled away. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but He interrupted every funeral He went to. He brought them all back to life. Every funeral that He was at. His death would provide life for the human race. His power over the grave wasn't just for them, but it is for us as well. And every time He raised someone from the dead, He was demonstrating His power over sin. Sin has no rulership over Him because He's righteous. He's pure. He's holy. The life in Him is greater than the sin in your heart. And just days before His crucifixion, they triumphantly celebrated His marvelous love. They thought that He was at that time going to usher in the kingdom of glory. But He did not come to sit on an earthly throne. 
He came to hang on a wooden cross to usher in the kingdom of love and glory. All of His life, He revealed the love of the Father. Where was His love revealed? On the cross. Where He paid our penalty for us. He couldn't have given any more than He did. He gave it all. So, who is this that hangs on Calvary's cross? Who is this who had nails in His hands and His feet? Who is this who bears the guilt of the world? It was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The God who cares for you. The God who loves you. John 3.16 again says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And His Son gave everything. If you will give yourself fully to Him, surrender yourself to Him, He promises you, you can have everlasting life. The text says, whoever. It doesn't say the rich or the poor. It doesn't say those who are are really smart, those who are ignorant. It says whomever. Whoever will come to Him and He will forgive us. Not because we deserve it, but because forgiveness has been in His heart all the time. He's ready. He's willing. He wants to forgive us. I want to close tonight with a story of a woman by the name of Adeline. She lived in Rwanda years ago when there was constant strife. There was all of these different factions who were trying to take control of the country. And her husband was a pastor. And they had a son. And one day they heard that there was this group that was coming towards their village that was going to kill all of the Christians. And so they gathered all of them together and they went to the church to pray. And then the men came. And they walked into the church with their big machetes and they started yelling and screaming, asking who was in charge. And finally the pastor stood up. And when he did, they ran at him with their machetes and they cut him to pieces. And everybody started yelling and screaming and running. And they just started killing people. She saw her husband die. She saw her son die. And they came at her and they cut her up and they left them all for dead. She laid there for several days in a pool of blood. And finally, there were some people that came through that village and they found this scene and they saw that she was still alive. Miraculously, somehow, she was still alive. And they took her to the hospital. It took years for her to heal. They said she would never walk again, but by the grace of God, she did. And she said to herself, she said, I can live the rest of my life in bitterness or I can go and serve and love others. And so she decided that she was going to go start ministering to the men in the prison. And so she went and she started ministering to their needs. She started having Bible studies with them. And there were many that gave their heart to the Lord. And then one day, they brought in a new prisoner 
And she saw him and she recognized him. She knew that he was the man that had killed her husband. She knew that he was the man that had tried to kill her. And she began to minister to his needs. She began to have Bible studies with him. And one day, she was studying with him and this man broke down and began to weep. And he finally got himself together enough to say to her, why are you doing this for me? Don't you know who I am? And she looked at him and she said, yes, I do. You are the man that killed my husband. You are the man that killed my son. You are the one that tried to kill me. And she looked him in the eye and she said, but I forgive you. And that man gave his heart to Jesus Christ and he became a model citizen in that prison. And there came a day when they were going to let him out of prison, but he had nowhere to go. And so she said to him, you're going to come home with me and be my son. Friends, that is the love of Christ. That is the love that He has for you. And He wants you to give your heart to Him. Do you want to do that? Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let Him who hears say, Come. And let them who thirst come. Whoever desires, let them take of the water of life freely. Friends, are you thirsty for that kind of love? Are you thirsty for the forgiveness of God? For the love of God? For the mercy of God? Come to the foot of the cross. Repent. Ask Him to come into your heart. Be your Lord and Savior. You can do it right now in the privacy of your heart. He promises us Whoever comes to Him, He will in no way cast out. Tonight was a little bit different. Tonight we didn't chase down the beasts. Tonight we didn't try to figure out who the Antichrist is. Tonight we didn't try to figure out the deceptions of Satan in these last days. But friends, it is so important for us to accept the truth of God and trust Christ so that when in this series of meetings He brings truth to you that challenges your heart, you will follow it no matter what the cost. And so it was important for us tonight to talk about Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation reveals Him. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures daily because in them you think you have life, but they speak of Me. And so we need to give our heart to Him. And so I want to invite someone. If you have never given your heart to Jesus Christ before, I want to invite you to come up here with me. I want to pray with you. And I want to pray for you. If there's anyone here, don't do it because you think people think that you should, but if you've never done it before, then I want to invite you to come up. 
If you have given your heart to the Lord before and you have fallen away, you can do that in the privacy of your, of your heart. Lord, forgive me. But let me remind you of something if you're struggling with the thought of coming up here. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So we need to come publicly. We need to say to ourselves, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I need Jesus. If that's you, I want to invite you to come up here with me and let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, Lord, you know every heart here. You know every struggle that we face. You know everything that's going on in our lives. And you know, Lord, that the time is short. And you are calling out a people. A people who love you so much that they will be willing to give up everything to be right with you. Lord, we want to be that kind of person. We want to be those people. But we can't do it without you. We need You to do a work in our heart that we cannot do in ourselves. And so we pray that You will do what You say You will do. That if we come to You, You will receive us. Receive us now. And Lord, transform our hearts. Give us a hunger and a thirst for the Word of God. Give us a desire to be with Your people in worship. Give us a hunger and a desire to share the truth with those around us. We pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.